following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. John 5, beginning at verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is only from man, but I say these things so you may be saved. He, John that is, was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you will have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. But if another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is God's eternal word, true in all parts and with all the authority of God's own speech to us. I was trying the other day to imagine myself a prosecutor in a murder trial. You know, of course, that I'm not trained in the law, but I could, I've watched enough Perry Mason and other TV shows in my lifetime to have some idea what kinds of evidence I might have to obtain in order to build a strong case to convict a defendant of a murder. If I understand it correctly, I would first of all want a witness who could show that the accused had the motive to kill, maybe statements he'd made to show that he hated the person. Then you'd want somebody who could say, well, he had the opportunity 
I saw him there right outside the man's apartment that night. Then the real clinchers, of course, would be one or preferably more than one eyewitnesses who actually saw him either commit the crime or maybe running from the scene. Now, it wouldn't hurt, too, if you had his fingerprints on the weapon. And let's really clinch it down if the victim's blood was spattered on his clothes. That would be terrific. It would be enough to seal your case in just about anything but the O.J. Simpson case, but uh, it would definitely say this crime happened guilty as charged. Now, do you ever think about that level of evidence and testimony, not for a crime, but for the positive case of the Bible for the deity and the utter uniqueness of everything that Jesus Christ came to earth to accomplish. Last week, we heard him claim that he was doing the very work of his Father in heaven, the work of giving life, bestowing both spiritual and real life to people. Then he also told us that God the Father had delegated into his soul control final judgment or government over the peoples of the earth and their final destinies. Now, these things, as we developed it and saw it, and if you weren't here, you could just scan that middle section from 19 through 29 approximately, and you would see Jesus claiming things that are the prerogatives of God. He was claiming to be from God, even to be God, because he could do these things. Now, He reiterates that, just reminds us that he said those things in verse 30 as we went on this morning. I don't do things on my own. I do my Father's will. But then he starts to talk in verse 31 of John 5 about the resultant and necessary thought about, well, how can I prove this? Because you're going to say to me, who in the world are you anyway? Prove it if you think you can do all these kinds of things. If I was to assert to you, I've throughout my lifetime been aware that Prince Charles of England is just about a year older than I am. And uh, so I've kind of had, you know, watched him as a teenager and so on and uh, thought, well, you know, he's definitely my generation, just a little bit older. But what if I came along and said to you some morning from this pulpit, Look, I've, I've kept this from you all this time, but now I need to reveal the fact I am actually the oldest son of Queen Elizabeth. And Prince Charlie is not the one in line to the throne. I am. Well, you're, you're smiling at me because you say, okay, I know he's just kidding. Sure, I'm kidding. But what if I was serious? Wouldn't you want to say, prove that? How in the world can you make a claim like that? You're going to have to produce all kinds of things, genetic evidence and everything else to ever make us believe something like that. Well, that's a little bit of where Jesus is going this morning. He says, I've, I've made great claims to you, and I'm prepared to say that the evidence will back up what I'm telling you about myself. You know, there are people who show what I guess they think at least is some kind of a cultural respect for Christianity. They would even perhaps say, well, Christianity is a good thing. You know, it kind of provides a nice moral standard and, and lots of inspiring uh, themes and so on. 
and you know they're generally in favor of it as long as as you would accept their idea that what we really have in the gospels that tell the life of Jesus and the doctrines that are spun out in the epistles that build on the life of Jesus they would say well after all though you do know that these are just human beings who have created an elaborate system of mythology myths by which human beings create ideals and guide their behavior and so on and you know, yeah, it's a good thing. Just realize that there are a lot of fantastic things in the Bible that nobody could ever prove. Well, those people are really despisers of Christianity, not admirers of it. But they probably don't even stop to think that the Bible itself urges us not to accept someone's spoken testimony without having supporting evidence. More than one way that comes out. Deuteronomy chapter 19 verse 15 has a sound legal principle that maybe you'd say is just good common sense, but it's part of the, the Word of God, where the Scripture says accept evidence of something, whether it's a crime or anything else, only on the basis of two or three witnesses. Giving testimony shall any charge be established. Then along comes Jesus here in our text, verse 531 of John. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not valid. He's applying the rule of Deuteronomy and saying, look, if I'm saying something to you that is utterly crazy or I'm making divine claims, I fully expect that there has to be independent testimony to establish this. Or you have a right to call me a madman and walk away. A theologian named B.B. Warfield, late 19th, early 20th, century once wrote this. He said, we do not argue that our sound apologetics, apologetics means arguments for the faith, that our apologetics alone will give life to dead souls, but we do say that faith in Christ is a conviction well-grounded in solid historical evidences. Christians aren't fools, Warfield was saying. We may not convince you. We may not be able to pound you with the evidence and say, you know, like two boys wrestling and one says, say uncle, say uncle, and I'll get off you. You know, that's not what a Christian does. We don't come to the unbeliever and and try to choke him with the evidence and say, here, believe it, believe it. But once someone does believe, they're not believing folly. They're not leaping off into the dark of psychological or philosophical nonsense. Our apologetic for the faith is sound. It is not lacking in truth. The problem is that there are millions of people who have never closely considered the massiveness of evidence and arguments and logic for trusting Christ as Lord. I want to, believe it or not, have four points instead of three, so they'll be short, I promise. As we look at four things that Jesus raises here in John 5, 32 and following as either witnesses or categories of witness or testimony that help to buttress and establish the claims that he himself has made. There are these. First of all, I believe he claims that God himself is a witness to him through the Spirit. Secondly, John the Baptist. Thirdly, his miracles. And fourthly, the entirety of Scripture that prophesies about him. So first of all, is his claim, and it may not be quite so obvious on the surface of it, but it's threaded through this text. I say it is the witness of God himself speaking by his spirit. I take that particularly from 
verse 32 and also again in 37 and a couple of other implications in this passage where the most direct thing Jesus says here is there is another who bears witness to me. Now, you could read that, and we grant that there are those who read that in verse 32 and say, well, in the very next verse, 33, they're talking about John the Baptist, so maybe John the Baptist is another. But if you read this text and try to get the sense of it from several readings through, you begin to realize that, no, probably verse 32 is actually talking about God himself, who bears present tense. John the Baptist isn't around even as Jesus was speaking here, he was probably already imprisoned or nearly imprisoned. He wasn't still bearing witness. There's another who bears witness in a continuing way, and his witness is true. In 537, he alludes to the voice of God. And while we know that a voice that we take to be God's voice was heard at the baptism and the transfiguration, remember who Jesus is talking to here. He's talking to enemies who didn't hear that voice. And he's saying, you've never heard God's voice. You've never seen him. And he implies why you don't even have the testimony of his spirit and his word in you because you've refused it. I remind you of what Romans 8.16 says, and a whole thread of argument in Romans 8 is the idea of the Spirit of God verifying the witness that we belong to God. Romans 8.16 says, the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. What greater spokesman could raise his voice on anyone's behalf than God himself? Not in audible things spoken out loud, not in billboards at the side of the road, but in that sure, immediate kind of witness that a man or woman knows when he's encountered the truth of God. Some of you certainly work in the computer industry in one way or another, maybe selling computers, maybe developing software. You're, you're in that great, we call it the IT, uh, internet technology industry and let's say you're looking to, to move out and get a different job. You put your resume together, and on a resume, of course, you want to list some references. And you want somebody, hopefully, who's seen you perform your job who can say, yes, John is excellent, he's good at this and this, and I think you'd be very happy hiring him and so on and so forth. What if the first reference name you put down, and by the way, you'd have to put his phone number or something, which I think is probably a hard one to get, was Bill Gates. You know, you're in the software development industry. Bill Gates is my reference. Wow. I, I would think any employer, a potential employer seeing that would either think it's a great joke or he would say, this is amazing. This guy claims that Bill Gates can speak a good word for him. Well, if that's impressive to you, what is it if God himself by his Holy Spirit, can speak and testify and assure others and bring them to a personal faith and credibility that God himself inhabits the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a powerful witness all by itself. Well, secondly, we have the one I'll spend least time on here is the witness of John the Baptist. Now, here's a historical individual name, verses 33 to 35. John, of course, was dealt with earlier in this gospel. He was the one who pointed Jesus out, said, Behold the Lamb of God, and so on. 
with his own rising fame, he stepped aside and said, I'm not worthy to untie this guy's sandals. Pay attention to him. Jesus says here, John was a burning, shining light, a light in a bright place. I was looking at uh, the weeks before Christmas through, you know, you get these deluge of catalogs and I won't name the company. Well, there's about 10 companies actually that send me their catalog every two weeks up to Christmas. But one of them that sells mostly men's accessories and men's clothing and so on had a lot of flashlights. I guess they figured flashlights are a good gift for men and all little pen lights for your keychain. But, but then they had the real, the macho flashlight. This thing was 18 inches long and, you know, fat. And it said that it, it, its beam was stronger than the beam of a car's headlight. Now, wow, guys, that's a flashlight. And in fact, of course, it pointed out that police departments use these as a weapon as well as a light. And I thought, I need one of those. And then I saw the cost and said, forget it. it was, I think it was like $70 or something like that. But uh, a burning, shining light. John the Baptist. He was like a laser beam of truth out of the Old Testament. For 400 years, God had not clearly spoken by a prophet. Then comes this man, John, living rough out in the wilderness. People were fascinated. They were drawn to him like, you know, like a great bonfire in the night. They came to say, what has this man got to say? And so many were fascinated. And yet, amazingly, They balked at accepting the Messiah whom John identified. They thought John was great, but they weren't so sure about Jesus. Greatest case I could ever imagine of valuing the bathwater and missing the baby. That's what that was about. But John was a great witness to the Lord Jesus. Thirdly, comes the witness of his miracles mentioned here. You remember Nicodemus coming to Jesus back in chapter 3? He wasn't quite the smart guy that he seemed to be with his doctor's robes and his intellectualism. Uh, He came and actually displayed a fair amount of ignorance. But he did have one or two things right when he came. He said, Rabbi, we perceive that no man could be doing the things that you do unless God is with him. You see, Nicodemus recognized the miracles of Jesus and said, hey, these are divine works. You don't, you know, not everyday conjurers or illusionists come along and, and just do these things. This is marvelous. God must be working through you. Nicodemus saw that. He saw the evidence of the miraculous work of Jesus, and Jesus speaks about that here in 536, where he says, the very works I am doing bear witness that God the Father has sent me. Now, not one of us present here has ever seen Jesus do a miracle. In fact, I doubt very much that anyone present here has ever seen a true miracle, period. Now, you say, I know somebody's going to come to me afterwards and say, my mother was miraculously healed. I won't give you an argument if that indeed happened. Perhaps it did. But the point is, Jesus is saying here to his enemies, you have been witness to these marvelous things I've done. The next one that's coming along, by the way, in the very next chapter is feeding the 5,000, and they were going to witness that. He's saying, look, you who think I'm crazy, who think I am 
deluded. I have to be opposed because I somehow oppose your temple. I don't, but you have seen the things that I have done, and you cannot deny. Your own man, Nicodemus, said it in so many words. And you see, one of the great proofs of the divine miracles of Christ in the Bible is that enemies never denied that they happened. You can jump ahead to John eleven forty seven, and you find there, this is beginning to near the time, getting close to the arrest and the trial in John. And uh, there, a council of Jerusalem authorities, some of these same people Jesus was addressing here in chapter 5, were conspiring, and some of them admit to the others, this man does many signs. That's an all-inclusive term. Miracles is included in the word signs. And in other words, we can't dispute what he's doing. We wouldn't even try. We'd be fools to say he didn't do that. And one of the things that had just happened, by the way, was the raising of Lazarus. This man does many amazing things that we can't deny. But then you ought to read what it says in John eleven forty eight. But if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away our position. Wow. You see that? Our eyes tell us this man does works that only God could do. The power of God is exhibited through him. But politics rules. We're going to lose power if we let him go on. We've got to eliminate him. One of the great evidences of the, of the authenticity and veracity of the New Testament miracles is that the enemies never tried to say that didn't happen. We see this same attack going on today when liberalism, when the critics that would tear down the Bible want to come against Scripture in some way or other, they'll do one of two things. They'll either kind of ignore the miracles and sort of just conveniently go around them, or they'll try to say, well, that might look like it was miraculous, but it really was this over here, something else, not what it looks at face value. Many church libraries and many individual ministers' libraries, including my own, for years have had the little set of commentaries by a man named William Barclay, long with the Lord, and I hope he's with the Lord. I say that in a very respectful way. I hope he is, because he's a man who in some ways had a lot of respect for Scripture, and you could read his little commentaries and get good things from them. But it was amazing that I began to discover, as I used William Barclay's popular little commentaries over the years, what he did every time he came to a miracle. And, you know, one illustration will, will suffice. He, he would say, and now this man was a Greek scholar, and, and he would respect the words of Greek unless they weren't convenient to be respected. And if it said, Jesus walked upon the sea, William Barclay would say, oh, well, you know, I think that the you know, it was dark and the disciples couldn't see very well. He was really walking on the beach alongside the sea. No, Mr. Barclay, you're a Greek scholar and you know about prepositions. The text very clearly says upon, it does not say beside. But you see, that's what liberal criticism always wants to do with the miracle. It stands in the way of a Jesus who is a human Jesus and a human Bible that you can merely make into a set of ethical principles or something, good rules to follow, it, it sort of blows the whole thing open if this is a supernatural Christ exercising the very power of God in the world. 
So watch out for those that are always trying to make excuses and say the miracles of Jesus aren't what they say. They still have to take on the greatest of all miracles, the Easter miracle, and tell us how somehow we've been deluded all these 2,000 years in the logic and the evidence that causes us to conclude no better conclusion than the fact that indeed Jesus conquered the grave. You tell us the alternate explanation. Every alternate explanation I've ever heard is absurd. Fourth evidence here, bolstering the claims in the work of Christ. John 5, 39 to 47, it's the largest part of this passage. And I'm not getting into the details involved, just the big principle here. But Jesus said, you people, my opponents, search the Scriptures because you think in them you will have eternal life. It is they that testify about me. These guys were Bible experts. You can study the Bible and be absolutely ignorant of its crux, of the main point of its message. They were They were people who could argue about the minutia of the text of Leviticus. You know, oh, when you bring a ram, you're supposed to cut its throat and you do this with its blood. No, I think you should do this. And they could go on all afternoon with lengthy arguments about minutia in the Scripture. Guess what? They never got it. I've been given a privilege as a pastor of the church to have a master key to this building. That's a very convenient thing to have. I might loan it to you, but not long enough for you to copy it. Uh, That key will open every door in this building, I think. I haven't found one yet that it doesn't open. It's extremely convenient to have when you're in moving about this building all the time. I want to tell you, Jesus Christ is the master key to every book of the Bible. Every one of the 66 books, I don't care how obscure a prophet it may be, Malachi or something, certainly the larger prophets like Jeremiah, Daniel, you're going to hear things in Daniel on our Sunday night series that point right to Christ. It's as if there's a door at chapter 1, verse 1 of every Bible book, and you've got to enter the door to get into the book, and the door's locked. And the key is, look for Christ. You approach the book and say, I will look for Christ here. He's here somehow in prophecy, in symbol, in covenant promises. I'll look for Christ. Believe me, the doors of Scripture tend to fall wide open to you. You remember that evening of the first Easter day we're told about in Luke 24? It's the only place reported when two anonymous disciples not named were were going to the town of Emmaus, walking along. Jesus joined them. They didn't know who he was. And he started talking with them, and and we read there this wonderful statement. Beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted for them from all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. I would give up all the years I spent in graduate school to have been in that little seminar. The insight of our Lord himself saying, Here I am, the crux of Scripture. It all leads to me. It all resolves on me. And no surprise, as these people spent a little more time with Jesus that evening, it says in the text, their eyes were opened to see him. They saw the master key of the Bible. Martin Luther comments on this passage, John 5, and he says, Here 
Christ indicates that we are to study the Bible to learn that Jesus alone is able to give eternal life to all who come to him and believe in him. Luther said, when we find Christ in Scripture, we find eternal life without fail in any passage. Well, what do we conclude today? I think a main point being made by our Lord here in this whole passage is John 5.40. The nub of the issue comes down to him telling these enemies Here's all the evidence. Here's all these things piled up that verify who I am, but you refuse to come to me and have life. You may know the name of Aldous Huxley, 20th century atheistic scientist, philosopher. Huxley wrote this once, I had strong ulterior motives for not wanting this world to have any meaning. Consequently, I assumed it had none, and I was able to continue in this assumption. I love that. That's one of the most honest statements of an atheist you will ever hear. Huxley said, I invented the theory that the world is meaningless. I assumed it was true, and I held on to it all my life. Now, he had to defend himself his whole life against things that said, no, the world does have meaning. But he was honestly admitting, this was my initial decision, and I just followed it. There was a lot smarter scientist who lived before Huxley. His name was Blaise Pascal. And Pascal said this, evidence of God's gift of eternal life in his son is more than compelling. But those who insist they have no need of him will always find ways to discount the offer. All right. And I ask that we conclude today with words also written by John in his epistle, 1 John 5, 9 to 11. We read this from John's pen. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. He said, whoever believes in the Son of God has that testimony in himself, the eternal voice of the Holy Spirit invisibly assuring him. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar. If you take God's evidence and throw it away with both hands, what are you saying about God? You're lying, God. What a thing to say. This is the testimony, John concludes in 1 John 5. God gave us eternal life, and that life is in his Son. All the needed evidence has been assembled. The question is, what is your verdict? Let's pray. Father, your word is powerful. Your son didn't come in the world telling us something fantastic and expect us to accept it for no cause. Thank you for that voice of the Holy Spirit that does give us a peace and solid assurance. Thank you for prophets like John, for miracle accounts, and for the Scriptures themselves. Father, help us. Help the one who's wavering and struggling today to see that they can plant their feet in a solid place when they stand upon the bedrock of Christ. Establish that one, I pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.